Father, thank you. We've been able to sing your praise. We've been reminded of the fact that our sins are forgiven, uh, which we desperately need. And then, Father, we are gathering here with friends and family and loved ones to worship you, to give praise and honor and glory to you. Thank you for that privilege. Would you guide us this morning as we, as we study together and uh, give our hearts and our minds our attention to you? All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to talk to anybody who's ever been dissatisfied with your prayer life. Anybody ever been dissatisfied with their prayer life? Yeah. Um, if you have ever felt guilty about not praying enough, some of us are probably in that category. If you've ever felt confused about how prayer works or wondered if prayer works at all, this message is for you. Uh, if prayer comes easily for you, if your mind never wanders, when you pray, uh, if you've never ever been troubled by the fact that some of your prayers seem to go unanswered, if uh, when somebody cuts you off on the freeway, your first thought and response is to pray for them. <laughs> God, help them. <laughs> if when you win the lottery, your first thought is to confess your sin for even playing the lottery, but then saying to God, God, you know, I'm just going to give it all to the church because I shouldn't have been playing this in the first place. If you're a prayer Jedi warrior, then this message is not for you. You might as well get up and go. This message is for the rest of us. It's a strange truth about prayer. Do you know that all people pray, atheists included? Really all people pray in moments of great joy, great need, great fear, great guilt, great sadness. Human beings typically speak to someone or something beyond themselves, even people that don't believe in the God that Christians believe in. We can't help it. Uh, to be human is to pray. And yet we wonder, uh, if we're being honest, you know, am I doing it right? Are there rules to this that I ought to know about? How complicated is this? This morning, we are continuing in our study of the greatest talk ever given, ever delivered, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. And we're kind of right in the middle of it. And here in the middle of this talk, Jesus gives us literally the greatest prayer ever prayed. But before he does that, he starts off with a couple of warnings. Uh, and we'll look at those warnings first. Jesus says this, he says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. It's good to not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by men. And I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. We've talked already about this, this practice of doing things in secret to avoid the problem of having only a reward of people seeing us and congratulating us and applauding for us. It's what Jesus is referring to here. There's a great line from the book, if you've ever read it, The Catcher in the Rye. The main character of that book is Holden. Holden makes this observation. He says, if you do something too good, and then after, after a while, if you don't watch it, you start showing off, you know, showing off about that, and then you're not as good anymore. Once you start doing something good to be seen by others is his point. And even prayer, as good as it is for any of us, all of us to pray, can be one of those things that people who are, when they're really good at it, they start showing off about it. Pastors are really guilty of this. Uh, you know, I pray often in groups of pastors and 
and they have these prayers that just wow you and they're quoting practically, I, mean, I tend to think it's every passage of scripture they've ever memorized and I'm sitting there and I'm feeling like man I stink I suck at this and trying to think of a passage of scripture you know that I can I can quote and so on and so forth and then I realized yeah I'm not really praying at all it's just all about me it's all about show you got to be very very careful when that happens you know you're according to Holden you're not as good anymore And, and he's right really because the target is completely wrong You ever been praying in a group before and others are praying and instead of listening to their prayers, which is what you would be doing if you're actually participating in prayer collectively together, instead of doing that, you're thinking about uh, what you will pray when it's your turn so that you can sound sincere and spiritual and, and mature and so on. Ever done that? Just a few of us. Interesting. Okay. Most of the people who've done that are in other churches, but not here. I've been told that's a problem for some people. (laughs) No, we've really all done that. We've all done that. And so Jesus uh, actually advises us to take an alternative strategy. Uh, This is what he says. He says, well, when you pray, go into your room as opposed to, you know, doing it on the street corner or in the synagogue or in public places. He says, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That's, that's what the practice of secrecy does, whether you're tithing, whether you're giving, whether you're praying. It's a wonderful, wonderful practice. Now, one good reason to pray in private is then if you do it badly, only God will know. Nobody else will see you doing it badly. And here's the thing, God doesn't really care. He's not exactly measuring you about do you pray well or do you do it badly. God isn't grading people on how they pray. The fact of the matter is he just delights in knowing that you are praying. He he delights in you talking to him. And what is more, uh, Jesus addresses here one of the great barriers that most of us face when it comes to this thing of prayer. This is kind of the backdrop of why prayer can be difficult and that is just the fact that God is unseen and so there are times when we pray and it feels like maybe our prayers aren't leaving the room you know is he actually up there is he actually hearing no you see God is unseen Uh, and even so he sees according to Jesus what we do in secret and he rewards what we do in secret. That's an underlying principle. Anything that's just between God and us versus on display for others, God is delighted in that. Now, Jesus calls attention to the fact that prayer is based on the reality of the unseen, that things that are not seen are really there, really matter, really have consequence, really have effect. Now, this very notion challenges us in the culture in which we live. Um, it challenges so much of, of what our culture embraces because we have become conditioned in our day to believe that only what is seen or what can be touched is real. That, that's reality, what you can see, what you can touch. Now, again, this gets us very deep into the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the first great question of life was, what is reality? That's, that's really the first great quote. What is reality? And Jesus says that the most real things there are, are spiritual. Or I could rephrase that. I, the, the reality of spiritual things is just as real as everything else. Take God, take his kingdom. 
just as real as everything else. Although sometimes we, we question that. Uh, take your own spirit, that spiritual part piece of you. That's just as real as the material part, your body. And so Jesus would say, in fact, perhaps the most important part of you is what is unseen. It's that part that thinks. It's that part that feels and desires and makes choices and decisions. It's that part of you that loves and connects with God and with other human beings. That part of you is something other than just cells and neurons and organs and flesh and bone and so. And the truth is your, your body, this would be Jesus' perspective, your, your body is always responding to that part of you that is unseen. And when your body dies, you don't. You do not cease to exist when your body dies, perishes, goes to sleep. Now, of course, this idea is very controversial in our day. The idea that matter is not indifferent to personality or to a spiritual aspect of a human being. The idea that matter is not all there is. This is a very controversial idea in our day. But I would suggest this, consider that, that matter, things like computers or smartphones or donuts, some of you had some donut holes before you came in, cars, airplanes, you name it, matter, all those things actually began as ideas, something unseen. Were those just chemical responses or is that your spiritual component creating reality before reality exists? I don't know. You answer that. I don't know the answer. Jesus says, what is true of persons is also true of the universe generally. Reality that is seen is undergirded by reality that is not seen. That's Jesus' metaphysic. That's behind much or all of what Jesus says. So this is where we start in the subject of prayer too. This is where we meet God who is unseen. We meet him in prayer. But this is also, if we're being honest, one of the things that makes prayer challenging because we think if we're not moving and achieving visible material progress, then maybe, maybe nothing is happening. Um, this kind of thinking, I think, actually starts in human beings when they're very, very little. Uh, I remember our children when they were real tiny, um, like 10 months old, we'd put them in a car and they could be fussy but as soon as the car would start moving, they would quiet down and be happy as a clam. I don't know that clams are happy. I don't know where that saying comes from, but you know, they'd be real happy just riding in the car. But I remember we'd come to a, like a red light and we'd stop and they'd start fussing. They'd start whining. They'd start crying and I could, I could never figure, well, what's the deal? What, what's wrong? You were fine a moment ago, now you're not. It finally dawned on me that they just wanted to be moving. I don't know, the vibration of the car, the feel, I'm not sure. They just wanted to be making some kind of forward progress in that machine they were in. Every time we hit a red light, every time we had to stop, the wailing would start. It was the weirdest thing. They're only 10 months old and already they were in too much of a hurry for red lights. <laughs> now, I say all that really just to say this. Prayer often feels to us like sitting at a red light. <clears throat> Nothing's happening. No forward progress. Then, truthfully, sometimes you pray and you don't get what you want or you don't get it when you want it. It feels like you're sitting at a red light. Is this ever going to change? 
And that is a barrier, if we're being honest, to prayer. And Jesus knows this about us. Uh, he goes on in his warnings and he says that when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. Understand, in Jesus' day, there were lots of practices around prayer that had to do with rote incantations, babbling, saying the same things over and over and over and over because the belief would be that maybe that will get the God's attention. Maybe that will magically cause to, something to happen that you want to have happen. And Jesus says, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Um, sometimes what we think of as prayer is really just superstition. Sometimes what we do in churches and call prayer is really just superstition. Um, there's an old cartoon, a Charlie Brown cartoon, Lionesses in that cartoon and he says, I've just made an important theological discovery. I have discovered that while you are praying, if you hold your hands upside down, you get the opposite of what you prayed for. <laughs> and some of you are thinking, oh, oh maybe that's been my problem. <clears throat> Point is just, you know, in churches, we have a lot of silly notions too around prayer. Some of them are just superstitious just superstitious. So we want to change those superstitious thoughts and bring them into conformity with what prayer really is. You see, even in Christian circles, people sometimes pray mindless prayers. You're kind of praying superstitiously, if that's what you're doing, praying mindless prayers, you know, where our minds are just sort of on autopilot. Uh, there are versions of this, different Christian traditions say certain prayers and they do it rote over and over and over and over. And it's appropriate to ask, does that accomplish anything? Is there any point to that? You know, I have heard pastors, I'm sure I've done this too. Uh, and again, when I've done this, I'm kind of doing it unthinkingly, therefore kind of praying mindlessly. You know, I'll pray God bless us as we come into your presence this morning. I mean, think about how stupid that is. God's probably hearing that and he's, no, I don't know if he shakes his head, but he, he's thinking, where, where do you think you've been? You're always in my presence. You cannot get out of my presence. And yet some of the things that we pray are mindless prayers and therefore very much like uh, superstitious kinds of prayers. I love it when we sit down to eat a meal sometimes. You got fried chicken, mashed potatoes and gravy and cheese on top of that or something. God, God, would you bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies? Who are you kidding? That's an absolutely mindless, grease, lard, butter, sugar, fat, bread, cholesterol. Might as well pray, God, harden our arteries. <laughs> it's mindless praying, and mindless praying gets very close to superstitious praying. Uh, the point is, this, again, the pagans did not realize, this was Jesus' big point. The pagans did not realize that when you pray to the God of Israel, that's really all about conversation, real conversation. It's to be intelligent, thoughtful conversation about what we are going to be doing together, uh, about what's going on in our lives, in the world, in the lives of people we love and care about, about the battle between God and evil, which is always going on. Do you understand the, the packing of meals that we did yesterday, many of us? That's all about the battle between God and evil. The reason children are starving in some parts of the world is very much to do with evil. And there's an evil one who loves to see that happen. Loves to see little ones perish for 
no reason other than I don't have sufficient food. So when we participated in that, I want you to understand, you were participating in the big battle, the battle between God and the battle between evil. It's part of what makes that whole thing so cool. But understand too, this is what prayer is. It's conversation about stuff like that. It's not mindless. It's not meaningless. It's not rote. It's not just repetition. Your mind, your thoughts in prayer matter tremendously because that's how you make contact, Jesus says, with the unseen reality who is God. God is the backdrop. He's the sustainer. He's the creator. He's all those things and more. Um, when we pray more than at any other time, we want our minds to be engaged. We want our minds to be at their best, at their clearest, at their most rational, if you will. And so Jesus first gives these warnings and then he gives us, quite honestly, one of the greatest gifts ever given to humanity. And that's the greatest prayer that has ever been prayed by any human being. Uh, this is the most used, most modeled, most repeated prayer of all time, bar none. Nothing else comes close. And understand too, getting advice from Jesus about how to pray and what to pray is a little bit like getting financial advice from Warren Buffett, only we're talking even better, you know? So why wouldn't we take the prayer that Jesus gave us and why wouldn't we use it? I'm gonna argue we should. <laughs> In fact, the takeaway from this week's message is really simple. Please pray the Lord's Prayer. That's the takeaway. Uh, my challenge to you is to pray this prayer that Jesus taught us every single day in the upcoming week. Whenever it works best for you, maybe first thing when you get up in the morning or pray it on your drive into work or pray it at noon or pray it on the way home from work or pray it as soon as the baby quiets down, right? Or there's a moment of peace with the children. Pray this prayer. That's my challenge to you. Uh, I have been using this prayer uh, virtually every day. I'm sure there's been a day or something where I've missed, but almost every day for over seven, uh, almost eight years. And this prayer has changed, really changed the way I pray. Uh, sometimes I pray this prayer multiple times in a given day. Sometimes I pray it straight through. I did on the way in this morning because I knew I was going to tell you about it. More often, the way I use this prayer is I use it like categories where I fill in around certain uh, categories that Jesus raises in this prayer. And I use each stanza to organize my thoughts and my prayers as I come to God. And I let each stanza sort of focus them and guide them uh, in conversation with the unseen God. And in the time that we've got left, what I want to do, uh, I, I want to walk through each phrase of the Lord's Prayer together and then uh, send you out to go pray it. Does that sound like a plan? Can we do that? So let's look at each one of these phrases that Jesus gives us in what we call the Lord's Prayer. We start with this first phrase, our Father in heaven. And what a way that is to talk to Almighty God. So much is going on in just that opening little phrase. This reminds us that prayer, for example, is not the same thing as just worrying out loud. That's what prayer is to a lot of people. It's just worrying out loud. But understand, my prayers are actually my thinking, uh, my taking my circumstances and taking those things to God with whom I'm living in connection, you see. 
taking those things to God and conversing about them, taking those things to the God who supplies all that I need to get through each and every day. I get the privilege of addressing this God, almighty God, as a father, our father, my father. It's a very intimate way to talk to Almighty God. It's actually quite incredible. In any intimate relationship, we often have private names, terms of endearment that we use. Uh, couples do, in love do this all the time. When Holly and I was first married, uh, I actually bought her, I thought this would be very romantic, I bought her two white doves that we had in a cage. Turns out doves are really, really very messy birds. We named these two doves Ralph and Griselda. And uh, you were always cleaning the cage. But, you know, it somehow seemed appropriate because our marriage early on was very messy as well. And so I gave Holly the term of endearment. I called her my little dove dropping. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we do that. Well, Jesus says this. He says, we can call the creator, the judge of the universe, the maker of even ourselves, we can call this unseen God our Father. Think about that. You realize the whole good news of the gospel is wrapped up right there in just that word Father? God is not just the Father of Jesus. I mean, that we would expect. We'd all go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that, that God's the Father of Jesus. Sure, look at Jesus. Sure, he would call God Father. But in the prayer that Jesus teaches us, he's saying, I want you to understand. I want you to use this term of endearment, Father. I want you to remember right at the outset when you begin to engage with this God, he is your Father, not just mine, Jesus was saying. Whoever your earthly father is or was, whatever your earthly father is like, good or bad or some mixture thereof, you have a heavenly Father who's all good. You have a heavenly father that made you, a heavenly father that knows you inside and out, a heavenly father who loves you, a heavenly father who is always, without blinking, watching over you. And you're supposed to be reminded of that when you say, our father, my father. <laughs> you're supposed to remember that God never says, what is it now? Why are you bothering me again? That's never the attitude that God has when he hears you come to him and say, our father. Fact of the matter is, when you say our father, you should remember that you're special. But I would add to that, you're not more special than other people. You're just as special as they are. We have a God who actually has the capacity to love everyone. He wants everyone to know about him. And that's what's implied and even so much more when we enter into God's presence, the unseen God, and we say, our Father. Now, Jesus says we say, our Father in heaven, and that heaven part is interesting too. Uh, where do you think of when you think of heaven? Uh, which is closer, heaven or downtown Littleton? You know, literally what it says here is our Father in the heavens. That's what it says literally here. And it's plural for a reason, because in the ancient world, they thought of different levels of heaven. That's the way they viewed reality. There was the atmosphere out there way far away, the highest heaven. That's where the stars were and things of that nature. But then there was the sky above our heads. There was that heaven. 
And then there was air. There was this space right here, and that's the closest heaven, and that's the air that I actually breathe. So when they prayed, our Father in the heavens, what they're really saying is, our Father who's everywhere, up there with the stars, in the sky above, and right here around me where I breathe the air. God, our Father in the heavens, our Father who's everywhere. That's actually what's being said. Our Father in the heavens, our Father who's right here with me. And then he says, hallowed be your name. Now, what that means is, God, may your reputation on earth be greatly magnified. May people come to, to know who you really are. May people realize how wonderful, how good, how great you are. May you be adored and worshiped and praised. Now, as soon as we look at this part of the prayer, there's a question that comes up, I find, that, that many people wonder if they don't ask out loud, and that is, why does God want us to praise him all the time? Is he insecure? Is he like some kind of cosmic narcissist that just needs to be praised constantly, prop up his ego or something? What, what's going on here? And this is important for us to understand, because you see, worship is not something we do to boost God's self-esteem. Let me tell you, God's self-esteem is as healthy as it can get. So our praise doesn't actually affect whether we give it or don't, it doesn't affect his self-esteem at all. Our praise, our worship, <coughs> excuse me, is something that we do to express our love. It's something we do to express our appreciation, our gratitude. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He said, when we see something we love, we just naturally desire to praise it. We just do. That's how a human being is put together. In fact, he says the act of praising doesn't just express our joy. It becomes part of a joy. We actually get joy from expressing that praise and offering that worship. A few years ago, Holly and I went to Ireland and England and Scotland. Holly was our primary photographer on that trip. She took thousands of pictures when we got home. You know, I started rifling through them with her, most of them. Most of them, to my chagrin, I found out were of flowers. <laughs> flowers, for crying out. We're in Scotland, Ireland, England, and she's taking pictures of flowers. Hundreds and hundreds of pictures of flowers. Now, she put some of these flowers, uh, in fact, many of them, on Facebook, and people were commenting, oh, how pretty, and so on. Why did she do this? Well, she loves flowers. Holly loves wild flowers. Part of the joy, too, that she got out of photographing those flowers was actually putting them out there and having others respond with her and say, wow, that's, that's beautiful. Now, it's just part of the fact that, that we actually, part of our joy and, and something wells up in us when we see something we think is beautiful or wonderful or great, we just have to share it. We want to enter in and involve others with us in the praise of whatever that is. Um, imagine this. Here's a different way of looking at this. Imagine the frustration you would experience if you saw the Broncos win a Super Bowl, but you were not allowed to cheer. For some of you, that wouldn't be difficult, but for most of us, it would be. <laughs> it's hard to imagine that, isn't it, right now? But can you imagine having to sit there and watch that game, and they're winning, and you can't say a thing. You can't move a muscle. You're not even allowed to crack a smile. That would be really painful for some of us. The point is just this. When we see something worthy of praise, something or someone magnificent and wondrous and praiseworthy, we just need to be able to sing its praises. 
Part of our joy is to be able to worship. I'll never forget the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. I shared this before, but I mean, I, you know, we got out of a car in a parking lot. Grand Canyon's over here. We walk over, there was a railing there, and you, you stand, and as you come up, this is a big hole. If you've seen the Grand Canyon, I mean, you know, this, it's magnificent. And I just remember my jaw dropping. I remember being overwhelmed at the grandeur of this hole in the ground and how beautiful it was. And it was just, it was magnificent. I had to praise it. Not only that, I had to say, hey, get over here. Come see this. This is unbelievable, you see. It's just how human beings are wired to give praise. Um, we need to be able to sing the praise of whatever is magnificent, whatever is wondrous, whatever is Praiseworthy, C.S. Lewis says, imagine if you're a single guy, imagine that beauty that moves you in a single woman. To whom would you want to express your praise? He asked, who would that be? Whoa, that's worrisome. It would be the girl. If, you, if you're the single guy and some woman is quite beautiful, who would you want to express that praise to? It would be the girl. Woo, okay, wake up, okay. <laughs> it would be to her. You see, enjoyment often spontaneously overflows into praise, he says. A lover praising his beloved. Fans praising the team that they are so supportive of. Praising good weather. We do that all the time. Isn't this a beautiful day? Praising good food, praising beautiful flowers, praising a good book or a breathtaking sunset. Enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. G.K. Chesterton, a, a Christian author, made this observation. He said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he, re, he is really very, very thankful and he has no one to thank. I mean, think of that. That's where Mother Nature came from, you know. Mother Nature, you go back to when that originated, uh, you walk up and you look at the Grand Canyon, you're going to say something. You, you can't say nothing. You're going to worship. You're going to praise so who are you going to praise? Well, if you're an atheist, you're going to praise Mother Nature. Wow. Wow, look at this. And Mother Nature often gets all these kind of anthropomorphic, you know, uh, things assigned to her, uh, very much like a God, kind of, sort of, you get the idea. But I'll tell you what, God, when, when you get to know him truly, and when you understand his goodness toward you, and when you become aware of his kindness and his mercy and his grace toward you every day, every morning, those mercies are new. God is the most worthy of all things, worthy of your praise and mine. And actually, if you begin to understand who you really are as a human being, you understand you're made in his image and you are made to relate to God and have that relationship with him. You are his child, and therefore part of what we do, part of what any child does with a parent is they offer up praise. My dad's bigger than your dad. My dad can beat up your dad. You know, my mom does that. You know, I mean, children just do this if they are in love with their parents. But anyway, this is all why we say, hallowed be your name. It's just what we say. It's part of our joy. It's part of why we're here. 
Jesus says, uh, go on and say, then your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is where it, when I pray, I do a lot of the heavy lifting. I, I just plow through my family, my relationships, uh, relationships with staff here, appointments that I've got, uh, staff families, our church, mission partners, our church planters. I mean, the list is long. I just kind of plow through every one of those and try to get into the details of what it would look like for God's kingdom and God's will to be done in those areas. And often I park here for quite a considerable time because it just, just seems like the appropriate, proper place to do the heavy lifting. Mention the details. Here I remember too that this is about God's kingdom, his will being done. Um, I'm viewing my challenges and concerns and goals and time and situations through the lens of God's kingdom and God's purposes. And oftentimes I'm just admitting I, I don't know what he's up to. I don't know where this is going, but I do want his will to be done. And in this part of the prayer, I'm not dwelling on my problems or focused on my little kingdom. I'm not located mainly in my sin or in my guilt and how I'm going to fix things or fix this or fix that or fix this person. I'm dwelling on the kingdom of God. And I'm alive because it is God's will that I be alive. And I'm praying because it is God's will that I get to pray. I am who I am because this is God's will. And I want to be a part of that great project of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. I want God's will to be done in our country. I want God's will to be done in the world. I want God's will to be done on the internet. I want God's will to be done in schools and in my neighborhood and my workplace and my marriage, my children, my grandchildren. I want up there to come down here. This is the place where we pray those prayers. And this always leads me to, to places of surrender because I realize I'm a lot of times out of sync with wanting God's will. Does any of you have that issue? And so this winds up being also a time of surrender. God, your will be done in me. Your will be done in my, in my body with my health, my time, my money, my energy, my words, my relationships, my work, all of it, God, your will be done. And then this leads inevitably to the next request. Give us today our daily bread. I love this part of the prayer. <laughs> this flows naturally from the, what we just prayed. Here I think about all the things I need, we need, yeah? Wisdom. Man, I need wisdom for this meeting that's coming up later this afternoon. God, would you guide me in that? Would you show me what your will is? Not even sure what to say. I need resources. God, in order to thrive, in order to live, I need income. I need energy. I need health. There's so many things. Daily bread is what sustains us. I need all kinds of things, God. I need a full measure of your spirit and your power to engage with what's coming in a moment later today. Guys, this is so important. Manna, daily bread, provision for life, answers to questions that we puzzle over, strength to cope, survive, and thrive. All this comes, I hope you noticed, one day at a time. That's significant. It's not God, give me what I need for the rest of my life. There, I'm done. No, it's give us today. Now imagine you have little children and you serve them breakfast. They come to the table and you give them their Fruit Loops because you're concerned for their health. And uh, they bring a little plastic bag with them and they take half of the Fruit Loops that you give them and put them in the plastic bag. And you see this happening. You say, what, what in the world, what are you doing? 
Why are you doing that? And they say, well, we're not entirely sure you're going to feed us tomorrow. Wow, that would be shocking, wouldn't it? If they actually said something like that, to hear your child, the child you love, doubt and question your provision for tomorrow, <coughs> excuse me, you probably tell that child, what, what, what are you thinking? Where does that come from? That's so ridiculous. It's not your job to think about tomorrow. Tomorrow is my job. I'll take care of you. Your job is today. You just receive what I give you today. Put it to good use. I will take care of tomorrow. This is what parents do for their children. Take care of the, as many of the details as they can for tomorrow. And here's the deal. When we worry, it's really not about yesterday. It's always about the future. It's about what's coming just around the corner. That's what causes us to worry. It's about tomorrow or the moments ahead. But here's the thing, I can honestly say, I thought about this because you know, pastors say lots of lies in sermons. I mean, some pastors do, but I, so I thought about this. I thought, can I really say this? And, and I can, I can really say this. I've been a Christian now for 47 years and I can, I can say that I can face anything if I do it with God one day at a time. I will admit sometimes big things on the horizon scare the bejeebies out of me. And I'm not real great at sometimes managing that. But you know what? Today, what's on my plate today, I can face that with God if I just focus on today. God, meet me in today. Give me the daily bread, what I need for today. Wisdom. Wisdom for today. Strength for today. Love for today. Grace for today. Answers for today. Joy. Joy for today. Tomorrow is going to come tomorrow. It's going to come for most of us. Some of you I'm not sure about, but tomorrow is going to come tomorrow. And my heavenly father is in charge of that. Not me. So God, father, please give me what I need for today. And then he says, forgive us our debts. Now I have to admit, it's always, always been a marvel to me, uh, why confessing our sin comes at this place in the prayer. Shouldn't it have come at the very beginning? Any of you ever felt that when you've ever used it? I, I've always thought, shouldn't we actually start with confession of sin? Because I got plenty of sin I can confess. Sin is serious, right? It gets in the way of my relating to God and loving and serving him. But yet it's fascinating to me that the first thing on God's mind, Jesus' mind, when he teaches us how to talk to God is not, Get the dirty laundry out there. That's not the first thing on his mind. Apparently the first thing God wants to talk about isn't my list of serious failures. The first thing he wants actually to talk about is his identity, who he is, and my identity in light of who he is. That's why we say things like our father or hallowed be your name, or your kingdom come, your will be done, or give us today the provision that's needed for today. All that stuff comes before we get to talking about my brokenness. That's kind of incredible because I sometimes tend to think that God would go, yeah, we're not talking until you get crystal clear about how you stink. You ever feel that way? But that's not where God, where Jesus says, you start in communication with the Lord. So you see, you cover all those things. Our Father, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done. Make provision for me today. And then we talk about my failures in that context. That's pretty incredible to me. You see, now it's time to talk about what's separating me from God because there are things that get in the way. Now we can talk about what's hurting me and how I've hurt others. Now it's time to talk about my sin. Neil Planting, a great Christian thinker, said this. He said, recalling and confessing our sin is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. We're garbage producers. We're always producing more and more garbage. And so it constantly has to be taken out. Uh, I sin enough that I need to clear the air between me and my heavenly father constantly. But it isn't the first thing. It's not always the most important thing for me to begin talking to God about. Other, you see, if I, but if I don't take the garbage out regularly, I stop communicating with God. I don't listen to him. I don't want to do his will. I just want to do my will. I don't want to do life with him. I want to hide. You ever felt that way? I have a very clever little granddaughter. She's uh, four years old. She's also very strong-willed and, uh, and pretty uh, headstrong little girl. Uh, she always wants to do just what she wants to do. And she was over at the house one time and I'm sitting on the back porch, this was in the summer. And she had a, a croquet mallet, a wooden croquet mallet that was nearly as big as she was. And she was just whacking the heck out of everything. And uh, I'm watching her do this and other siblings are running around. I'm thinking, you know, I can see an accident about to happen. And so I tell her, put the mallet down and stop it. And uh, she stopped for a moment. She paused and there was a look of, you know, she, she didn't want to stop whacking things, right? Whacking things is fun. And she thought for a moment and then she looked at me and she said, don't look at me, Papa. That was her solution to the problem. I'm going to keep whacking things. So it'd be better if you just don't, this is the real sinner's prayer that she was praying. Which is don't look at me, Papa. Don't look at me, God. Don't look at me, Father. Because I'm going to indulge my temper right now. I'm going to ignore the poor. I'm going to indulge this sinful appetite that's in me. I'm going to indulge it. I'm going to give less than my best at work. I'm going to deceive this person. So don't look at me, Papa. I'm going to vent in this email. I'm going to self-promote. So don't look at me, God. Because here I go. You see, doing wrong requires that we put God out of mind that we put him at a distance, that we pretend he doesn't see. And believe me, we are pretending. But when we are praising his name, which we're doing in this prayer that Jesus taught us, when we're desiring his kingdom to come and his will to be done and looking to him for provision, this is the time to pray, forgive us our debts. It just is. And here I ask God, God, is there something I need to go back to, to revisit, something I've broken, something that I need to fix? Was I unkind to somebody? Was I selfish? Was I dishonest? Uh, were my desires to whack something just out of line? Uh, where do I need to ask forgiveness? Where do I need to repair relationships? Because Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. So this is a reciprocal kind of thing. It's so interesting to me. We are to be a community of grace because we are always a community receiving grace. That's our identity. So when the church collectively acts ungraciously, when it is slow to forgive, when the posture of the church is always pointing out everybody else's sin, but not appropriately acknowledging our own, whoo, whoo, does that stink? That, that is ugly. And the world usually responds to that by calling us what? Hypocrites. And oftentimes they're right. 
Um, now we're going to look at this whole thing of forgiveness more next week because in a way the whole message of the Sermon on the Mount pivots right on this point. <coughs> um, this thing of becoming a community that lives in grace and shows grace to others. But for today, I'm just going to say this. It is psychologically impossible for us to have a tender heart towards God while at the same time a hard heart towards other people. That's impossible. If I am going to do that, I have to say, don't look at me, Papa, because I'm going to hate this person. I'm going to get this person. I am not going to forgive this person the way you forgive me. Receiving and offering forgiveness is they're, they're inextricably tied together. The last phrase, the next phrase, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Here I'm asking God to guide me. God, keep me from falling into my worst self. Give me strength not to fall into the, the destructive habits and patterns that, that I know I will left to myself. I saw another prayer not long ago that I really appreciated. It expresses the amount of help that I personally need when it comes to battling things like temptations in my life. It goes like this, dear God, so far I've, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, I haven't lost my temper, I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or even overindulgent. I'm, I'm really glad about that, thank you. But in a few minutes, I'm gonna get out of bed. <laughs> and from then on, I'm gonna need a lot more help. <laughs> thank you, amen. <laughs> Does that get an amen from anybody? You, you can relate to that, yeah. See, here's the deal. Somebody is going to lead me today. I'm going to lead myself. You're going to lead me or I'm going to have him lead me. And if I let anybody but him lead me, I'm going to walk smack dab into temptation and I'm going to give in to it. So the question is, who's going to lead you? In the small moments of my day, I need to pray, God, lead me, lead me. God, deliver me from this temptation to sin. Deliver me from this temptation not to trust you. Deliver me from this temptation to lash out in anger, to live in fear and worry. Deliver me from the temptation right now, God, to lie or to steal or to hate or to just not care about that person. God, guide me down a different path. Show me where to go. And God wants us to seek his leading. God, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil or the evil one can be translated either way. In that last phrase, I would just say this, Jesus is calling it like it really is. Life is a battle, friends. It's a battle against sin. It's a battle against death. And if you're young, you don't know that yet. But believe me, when you're my age, you know it's a battle against death. Something's dying on you every day, right? Sin, death, and evil. These are the things we battle. And we will only overcome those things if God delivers us. And so we must decide every single day whether we will be awake and aware of this real spiritual battle. And if you're not awake, if you're not aware, you will mostly, I think, muddle through your life. Largely blind and oblivious to what's going on in the bigger picture, in, in the picture of kingdoms. And you will probably only call on God once in a great while when you find yourself in a mess that you're, you're very clear you can't do anything about. But if you pray this prayer, the prayer that Jesus teaches us, this prayer for deliverance from evil and the evil one, if, it will make you aware of the size and the scope of the battle, the battle that's very real, real a spiritual 
battle. And we need that awareness every single day to have context for understanding the challenges that are in front of us. Now, that's where the prayer ends, right there. Over and done. This is a, a tendency, actually, that Jesus has. Uh, he often just ends material quite hard or harshly. It was kind of a jarring note to it. Uh, we're going to see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when we get there, uh, it, it, he just kind of abruptly ends. The final line is how a, a storm comes to this foolish man who's built his house in a place where he shouldn't. He's built it on sand, and it says, and it fell with a great cash crash, boom, the end. That's it. Uh, he tells the story of the prodigal son. Many of you are familiar with that, who, who uh, comes back home, and there's a big party because he's come back home. But the elder brother is outside, refuses to come in, refuses to participate. He's resentful and grudging and so. And the father goes out to him and says, come inside, son. And that's where the story ends. Boom, over, the end. We don't know what the elder brother does. And Jesus often does this. He, he doesn't typically tidy things up. He knows that an unresolved ending often sticks in our minds and makes us think. He is always after making us think, always, because that's how change happens in our lives. And so here's the takeaway. Pray this prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us this week. Pray it every day, multiple times a day. Don't rush through it. Fill each phrase with your own thoughts your own deep desires. Make this week an adventure in prayer by using the prayer that Jesus taught you to pray. I said earlier on, this is the most prayed prayer in the history of the human race and nothing else, friends, even comes close. And so since our rabbi Jesus taught us to pray this prayer, understand it has been prayed in more languages, across more continents, in more cultures and civilizations, century after century for over 2,000 years. And we're going to pray it together right now. And when we do, we are humbly and, and, and kind of grandly joining a great chain of prayer that has not stopped from the first day that Jesus gave us this prayer right up until now. Think of it. Every moment, day after day, night after night, every year people are in every tongue praying this prayer. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. It's on the screen. We'll put it up there. And we're going to say this prayer thoughtfully together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and the evil one, we can say. Amen.